0: Pathfinder Podcast is presented to you by Ansarado. Ansarado is the modern deal and virtual data room technology designed to make M and A, capital raising, divestments, restructures, and IPOs as simple as possible. Since 2005, Ansarado has been trusted in over 24,000 transactions and powered over one trillion worth of deals. Ansarado is a secure space that includes workflow tools, AI powered data rooms, built in question and answer, and integration frameworks. It's the data room trusted by modern dealmakers. You can start for free today at Ansarada.com. You know I like a winning team, so say it with me, Ansarada.com, for your next winning outcome. Welcome to The Pathfinders, the modern dealmaker series brought to you by Ansarada. Now here's your host, Dahani Jones. Welcome back, everybody, to The Pathfinders, presented by Ansarada. I'm your host, former NFL player, investor, and entrepreneur, Dahani Jones. Today, I'm joined by Sharice Clark-Sorris. Sharice is the founder and CEO of Harborview Equity Partners and brings over 20 years of experience leading across corporate finance, capital markets, investment banking, and private equity with a focus in the communications and media and entertainment sectors. She's with us today, share some of her deal-making stories, insights into the high-stakes world of music catalog sales, and reveal the secret to why content is queen. Welcome, Sharice. How are you doing?
1: I'm good, thank you. How are you?
0: I'm excited. I'm uh, elated that you're able to join us today because there's just so much of your experience that I know everybody wants to hear about. And, you know, the fact that you played so many different leading roles, right? Morgan Stanley, GE Capital. I mean, before, you know, finding First Step of Music and Harborview Equity. You know, the thing that I always think about or concentrate on is a lot of times the founder's background, right? Childhood and things that directed you to kind of choose your own career path. Were there specific moments that you kind of felt as though you were going to end up in the place that you are today?
1: It's a pretty big question. I'd say the answer to that is yes and no. So the yes answer to that is I grew up in Queens. I'm a Queens girl. I'm the child of two parents who love me dearly. My dad was an entrepreneur locally, a real estate entrepreneur, and So this kind of idea of ownership and entrepreneurship was super important to me growing up. And then I you know, intersected in a creative landscape my entire life. Like, you know, I am a classic child of the arts who, when people say like, you know, the DJ saved my life or, <laughs> you know, music saved their life like that. Right. That was, you know, in terms of playing the piano, I was classically trained for a long time. I danced for forever. I ran theater groups in college, like always wanting to get as close to the To arts and culture as I possibly could because it just had such a profound impact on me growing up and was sort of my, my secondary lifeline, if you will, growing up. So for me, the intersection of business and culture has been a big part of something I've always wanted to understand. I mean, my dad even took me to, I forget what the conference's name was in New York, one of like these hip hop that power Summits um, <laughs> exactly. back in the day, I was like 17, went to like, saw all these people talking about the business of music kind of really early on and also did things like went to like, I was probably at one of the first years of ABFF, the American Black Film Festival, mm-hmm. and it was in Acapulco. <laughs> for those people who remember those early days. So just constantly super fascinated with the business of entertainment. I never wanted to be in front of the camera. In back now, you know, when I do interviews like this, I'm always like nervous to do them because it's not what, it's not who I am. I'm the behind the scenes person, not the in front of the scenes person, but it's always been a very, big fascination to me. The no answer is I did, you know, also have a very practical side to everything I did. So I went to Georgetown, business school. You know, I majored in finance. I worked on Wall Street, specifically wanting to work in the media group when I kind of graduated from Georgetown and then went to business school and specifically wanted to go and work in media segments in the finance professional, but kind of taking somewhat of a traditional road as it relates to take to understanding these businesses. So, as I matriculated through my career, I tell people sometimes that I'm an accidental entrepreneur (laughs) for a number of reasons, right? So by the time I got senior enough, I made partner at Morgan Stanley. I've got lots of great friends there, you know, grew up there professionally. When I started thinking about what to do here in this space and I started tinkering with in 2015 when I was pregnant with my son. So a lot of things I marked by the birth of my children. When I was pregnant with my son, we started working on this idea around kind of creating investment vehicles for non-correlated products in the entertainment and media space because my dear friend and colleague, Drew Hawkins, who's no longer at Morgan Stanley, but he started a global sports and entertainment franchise on the wealth management system. And he kept coming to me with, you know, hey, we've got all this like flow. And I was just like, oh, I got the idea. I'd actually written about it to go in my application to business school about what I wanted to do um, one day was to create a platform that owned content because of how powerful it is, particularly for people of color mm-hmm. and in communities, like who we are and what we are known to in the world is what people see and understand. So let like, oh, I got it. Let's go create this thing. So we went off about the business of trying to create something again, but for something for Morgan Stanley. Ultimately, I ended up you know, hearing from a few investors, one of whom I'm still very friendly with today, I'll give them a shout out. We had a, I had an offer on the table from a group called Tarsadia Capital, which is a family office here in New York. And the principals are really still good friends of mine, but they were like, Teresa, we'll do this deal. We'll pay off this bridge. We'll do it. But you got to leave Morgan Stanley to run this. This idea that you have that you're going to run this at Morgan Stanley feels like not the right idea. It's time for you to give to you. Mm-hmm. I wasn't ready. So I was like, oh, I can't do that. Like, how do I abandon the place that I grew up at? And that doesn't feel like the right thing for me to do. So I waited and went and found other investors. And they ultimately said the same thing. And the last one that said that was Providence. And so Providence Equity Partners came in, backed what I had built at Morgan Stanley, paid off this bridge loan that we had put together, and then went about the business of starting tempo, launched that business, bought most of the assets that they own today were things that I originated or underwrote before I left, but then looked up and was like, I'm building something for someone else.
0: Mm-hmm. Let me ask you a question though, but why, while you were building tempo, you know, was there any sort of moment along the way, you know, you had the investors, you had the people that told you, like, you got believing believe in yourself, you got to step away, you got to do this for you. Did you kind of look around and say, well... Maybe, maybe I sh- maybe I should because there's not a lot of people that look like me in my organization, and for me to kind of have ownership and dominion over a product of which I create and people believe in me, might actually sort yeah. of tell the people that I'm working with now, like you should value me a little bit more.
1: Right. Well, so that happened. <laughs> so I was starting to get reverse inquiry now because I had basically curated investor relationships across time mm-hmm. and. You know, one in particular who I'll also give a shout out to that was just really great friends to me, or who are allocators, were like, Sharice, you 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 can do this. People are looking for you. And I was like, Well, don't I need a big shop? Don't I need the shingle? And they were like, No, you don't need those things. And that gave me and this was in the summer of 2020. And so I hadn't even really been thinking about leaving yet, but that kind of was a pretty eye-opening conversation too. That's, you know, our good friends, Jason Howard at Grosvenor, who is really good at spotting talent as it relates to managers. They've backed all the best. I'm like so fortunate to even be in their company, kind of gave me that insight and that feedback. And it was kind of the push that I needed. And So I looked up in January or sorry, December of 2020, as we started talking about 2021 strategy and sort of decided, like, I think it's more risky for me to not bet on myself than it is for me to stay, like more risky in the scheme of like, how much impact can I have to your point about having your own dominion, how much value and legacy can I create for myself, but also certainly for others as we build a, we build an institution that we want people to believe in, particularly as we're trying to build the next generation of an asset management firm. Mm -hmm. I kind of concluded to take the leap of faith. So I left in January of 2021. I had a nine-month non-compete. I sat on the sidelines for nine months. They had to pay me to do so. I used that time to basically start to build my building blocks, like identify my team, identify partners. And I was lucky to emerge one week to the day after my non-compete with a, with a partnership with Apollo in the right way, one where we own our firm completely we've got a big capital commitment where we have discretion over and we have the ability to put that money to work and the ability to really create and build the culture and the team and the firm that we really want to build. And also also the the scale to compete the way that we want to. So that has been a really, you know, I feel like every day I wake myself up and I'm like pinching myself because I'm totally living the professional dream, right? Like the thing that I always wanted to do. And so that's been, a really great blessing in my life. And again, we're super excited to be doing what we're doing. And to your point around, you know, there's not, there's not a lot of people that look like me. No, there's certainly not a lot of black female CEO founder led private equity platforms of scale certainly. And so I take this, you know, mantle pretty seriously in that, you know, I think I want, to, I want to be a beacon of light for others to think about how they can do it and how they should do it in terms of what they should be building. But we're very serious investors. You know, we've had an ability to kind of demonstrate that we have a track record of kind of doing really good work. I exited it as a technical matter. I've, you know, created two exits around this asset class, one to Providence, and then now, you know, building a, building a strategy myself. So, you know, we've been able to be able to be pretty successful at what we do. And since October, we've put a lot of money to work and been building the strategy, you know, bit by bit. And that's been great. You know, it's been really fun to be a disciplined investor, but one that really respects the art, you know, we do a lot of science in our world, but the art really forms the science. And so, really allowing ourselves to engage with the creative community in a way that we are translators, in a way that we are accessible, in a way that we are fair, has been really important to me as we kind of embark upon this path.
0: Do you do you find that you know through your, your pathways and through some of the people that have supported you along the, the way, you know, you, you've obviously seen. Barriers. You've obviously seen seen obstacles and you you mentioned this word science and I love that, right? Because it's about figuring out a solution. It's not looking at something that's preventative. It's it's about, you know, solving the equation so you either can go over it, around it, through it, take it apart. What was some of the science in some of the obstacles that you saw along the way? You know, because I think about it as African-American man in the world of finance as you as an African American woman in the world of finance, there's a lot of young women and people of color that are looking to kind of get into the financial world. And they don't necessarily, not everybody, not everybody's looking at the world through a scientific lens. Some people might be looking it through, you know, it's not going to happen. So how do you contemplate and deal with that personally?
1: So I think for me, one of the biggest things that has been critical to my life is that I always grew up thinking like there was endless possibilities. I don't know why. I mean, my parents were really good at creating that space and environment mm-hmm. for us in a way that felt really tangible, like, and didn't feel unattainable. And so what we have to, I think, recognize is that the resiliency with which we sit is actually a superpower, right? So our ability to sit in spaces that weren't naturally designed for who we are, to understand them, to speak a different language, because in a lot of times these are different languages that are being spoken. If you weren't raised, you know, talking financial, liter- you know, in financial literacy or even in transactional literacy, it's like two steps, right? It's like, understand, watching the stock market is one thing and then understanding how to engage in, you know, complex transactions is another thing. So when you think about our ability and agility to live in these spaces that are designed for us where this is not our native language where it's almost like a secondary language just think about how much of that is a superpower and really tap into that, that means that your capacity for what you do is actually much bigger than you think it is and you may be slower on the uptick because you don't speak the language but you're but you're probably gotten so much more fundamental infrastructure to actually once you get the language to actually see different things. I think the other thing that I've really leaned into as an investor is this idea that I see things that other people don't see. And the reason for that is who I am and where I stand. Mm-hmm. And so if you're raised in large organizations that again aren't necessarily built for you, you've got to cut your own path. Like especially for me becoming I'm a partner at a large scale Wall Street firm, right? Like in order to do that, most people have their own products. Mm. That product has been assigned to everybody who's got, got their lane. <laughs> right? So like, how do you create your own lane? And for me, creating my own lane was around constantly seeing around the corner or seeing, taking an angle that people didn't see. So it was like, a, it was a necessity for survival, but in that survival is also lots of opportunity. And so, so that was a really big part of what was important to me. Or what was critical to my success, or even I don't even know, I don't know that I'm so successful yet. I mean, I <laughs> some things, but honestly, I feel like I know the things that I'm trying to get to and I'm like only 10% of the way there. So I would say critical to the journey and that I'm on have been, you know, this ability to sort of see that here are the here are the confines for which, you know, success typically exists okay, get the building blocks, but then how do you create new things? And so innovation has been a big part of who I am and seeing sort of around the corner and taking this very strong point of view on things where I have conviction, but also, you know, a thought process around how, uh, around how to go about it.
0: Yeah. And I would see that that thought process is kind of like you utilizing a a periscope to see over the wall, right? While at the same time, you're working your way through the wall and that's the resilience factor being able to kind of spend time and study the landscape study the landscape while at the same time creating your creating your plan and i think that also goes into not only creating your platform but also closing deals right and there's a lot of there's a lot of work that goes into it as well so I, you know how does that philosophy flow into your deal making mentality and bringing things into fruition
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, listen, part of it is, you know, really loving and wanting to understand IP because when you love and understand IP, it's actually a really structured asset class. Like there's a lot of different nuances. There's tons of different waterfalls. Every deal looks different. And so from that, that kind of really led me to into actually my big credit background. And the combination of those two things is that you're constantly like, okay, well, here's the, here's the problem set. And a problem set needs to have a nuanced solution that's specific and bespoke to what it is that you're looking at at the time. And so for me, I've always actually been that person. I've always been the person that's like, okay, what's the problem? Okay. There's gotta be a way to thread a needle. So in deal-making that's true too. It's like, okay, well, let's look at the facts and circumstances that we have. And I'm sure there's a way that you can thread the needle to actually create the opportunity set. The other thing I think too, that has been really critical for me is that a hundred percent of zero is zero. And How do you think about increasing the pie and not being so fixated on controlling something to look at, look at it only the way that you see it being Mm -hmm. fit? So having an ability to be able to think creatively and think outside of the box has been a big, a big focus of mine, too. Right. So, like, let's get there. But I, I dream big. And so. For me, that is okay. Well, look, if we if we want to stay small, then yeah, sure. There's maybe only one way to do something. But if we want to think about something in scale with real impact and real high quality returns, then you got to be thinking differently. And so, for me, that's a big part of of um, what I'm looking to do.
0: The Pathfinders podcast is presented to you by Anserata. Ansarada is the modern deal and virtual data room technology designed to make M&A capital raising divestments, restructures, and IPOs as simple as possible. Ansarada has just launched Freemium with the world's first online data room quote. Now you can get a free data room and quote in just three clicks and just 15 seconds. There's no need to wait. Get your room open straight away no matter what stage you're at. Deal marketing, deal preparation, or due diligence. And here's the best bit. Usage fees only start when the deal goes live. All the top M&A firms and investment banks are jumping on it. That's because there is no risk, just reward. Pretty cool, right? Check it out at anserata.com quote. You know I like a winning team, so say it with me. anserata.com for your next winning outcome. And I'd imagine, you know, you talked a little bit more earlier about the culture of of your company? How do you, how do you maintain that? Right. You know, we're, we're, we're seeing the world of technology revolutionize the way that we do business. Some people don't even meet up with people in person. Some people have teams that are completely remote, (laughs) you know, you can essentially be anywhere and still get stuff done. You know, how do you think about your culture and collaboration with your team, your work, as well as your, your clients and sort of applying that basic factor of resiliency and allowing that Periscope to see over the wall so that everybody essentially moves at the same time?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. One of the things I'm really excited about doing is building culture. Like, I'm really excited about building this next generation of asset management. One of the things I'm excited about about private equity is it's a really young industry in comparison to a lot of other industries. Insurance is like a 100 years old or banking is a 100 years old. But private equity is actually young. I mean, the oldest firms are just now turning over their founders. Like the, the oldest and biggest and most sizable firms are just now turning over their founders. If they are, I mean, they're, you know some of the founders are still like in key seats and operating rooms. So that's a really young business. In youth, you find innovation. And so mm. what I'm really excited about is this next generation of creating the next generation of an asset management firm. So really be thinking about what do we want the culture to look like? Who do we wanna be? What do we want the team to look like? How do we think about, you know, really being ready for this next generation of investors, next generation of opportunity sets? And to me, that really means thinking differently about talent, around really giving talent the opportunity to have a seat and a voice at the table. I've got, you know, a really great squad of people, all of whom are fantastic. And I can promise you that they probably would tell you if they were sitting in a big shop, they wouldn't have the level of responsibility that they have. They wouldn't have the ability to have a seat at the table with a real voice on how we shape and think about strategy. But we really do take that stuff seriously. We also really believe that ownership really works. We saw, like you know, a group of private equity firms coming together talking about ownership works, and we're excited for that because we already do that. Everybody in our business, including my assistant, participates in the equity and ownership of our firm. So that's a big part of really wanting everybody at the table to think like an owner and to really be engaged in what we're trying to build, which we think is some, somewhat differentiated. And then lastly, we sort of really have this, you know, this thought process that there should be many of us sitting at the table. So like I'm Jamaican by heritage, Harborview is the name of the town that my father grew up in, in Jamaica. But we have a big saying in Jamaica, out of many one people, right? And so if you look at our team, we are many different We come from many different walks of life, but we are one people. We are one group of people who are here to do the hard work, but to think really differently, to focus on creating differentiated returns. But we are one people together out of many walks of life. And we think that actually leads us to better outcomes for a variety of different reasons. We don't have a lot of group think and group speak. We have people who have come from different points of view, and those different points of view are intersecting in a fairly collaborative and respectful way, but in a way that harnesses the best of the ideas and really pushes them forward. And so this is a big part of what we think makes us special. So those are the things that I really focus on. Like one of the things I'm super excited about right now is building culture. Like obviously doing great investments are great. The opportunities that we've invested into date have been performing exceptionally well, but we're really, I really love building culture and really this idea of what is the next generation of a firm like ours look like? We want to be a skilled firm. We don't want to be a pop-up shop. We, you know, we're doing music royalties now. We love it. We think it's fantastic um, as an asset class, but we intend to be and will be meaningful to the entertainment and media segment writ large. And so that's a big focus for us. So we're thinking about kind of what our next strategies will be outside of only music right now and working through a few opportunities. And so that's super important. We want to be meaningful, at scale, we see people like Jose Feliciano and Robert Smith and Orlando Bravo as North Stars for where we think we can go in how we scale our business. And these, all these people are big brothers to me in my head. Some of them I know. Some of them, <laughs> <laughs> some of them I have far. but really looking at how to think about really building, like I said, that next generation mm-hmm. firm. Yeah,
0: and I and I, uh, you know, Jose Feliciano and and Robert Smith, two of the icons in the industry. And yes, they 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 are the North Star. But I think that there's a whole constellation of talent that is that is rising, right? And I I think that's what's so amazing about the universe is that you can have your own place and you can create your own light from your own star. And I think that's I think that's what you're doing. And and some of the stuff has already started to pay off for you. You mentioned it before. And, you know, with the music catalogs, I mean, I don't think anybody was really even thinking about this until all of a sudden these headlines start right. going I'm off, you know, and, and it's making, it's making big news. Right. And so yeah. why is it such an, a, an attractive opportunity? And, you in, know, in and quite frankly, why are so many artists suddenly deciding to like, now is the time to sell?
1: I mean, listen, one thing is let's pay homage to, you know, Transacting in selling catalogs has been around for a while. It just hasn't been as liquid of a market or as active as a market as it is today. It is also, I think, relatively still a wide open field relative to the actual addressable market that's there. I'd say why it's attractive is music and music consumption is part of the human condition. So it's not this thing that we turn off in the recession and turn on in good times. It's something that we participate in all the time. And a lot of times as we participate in it, we're not even conscious that we're participating. Right. And so. For example, I was at a conference a week or two ago and the band opens up with A Long Walk by Jill Scott, a song that we own in our catalog. I'm like, this is how it works. We're always engaging with music in even when we are actively requesting it or whether it's being passed to us, so you go to Target or you go to the supermarket or you go to the gym and you're hearing music in your daily lives or you're participating in at-home exercise and you're participating in or you're on roblox and my kids are hearing songs that they i don't know my 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 children (laughs) my children do a TikTok to bills 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 love it and how would they know these things and so the point is that you know ultimately we're engaging in music as part of the human Mm -hmm. condition so it's really and truly non-discretionary and not in in any util in a part of our lives and so it's, you know, from that perspective, non-correlated. So it's actually the perfect asset class to me in this current environment. And it kind of creates non-correlated long duration cash yields if done correctly. We think we have a mousetrap that does it correctly, that treats the asset like what it is so that we can talk to investors about that pretty efficiently. But yeah, I mean, you know, again, art is such a part of the human condition that I think sometimes people think of it as too frivolous or it's too fun. It's the kind of like a lot of people's escape. And so they don't always think of it as an asset class or an investment class that can be taken seriously and deliver the types of returns. We disagree with that wholeheartedly and obviously have proven that in a number of different ways.
0: Well, I I would say that I have Despacito going on in the background all the time. And so, you know, I'm just, I just want to make sure that I'm I'm taking care of you because you own that catalog. (laughs)
1: Yeah. (laughs) We own that. Listen, I got I've got a bunch of stuff that we got. We have um we purchased Dre and Vidal's catalog, which we announced earlier this last month or what have you. And Dre wrote a bunch of songs mm-hmm. for Usher. So in his mm-hmm. most recent Tiny Desk concert, he performed at least one of the titles that we own.
0: Oh, t- wait, wait. For and, and for those that don't know about Tiny Desk, I mean, you gotta check it out. I mean, everybody's gonna yeah. know when I when I wow. when I do that <laughs> and and where everybody was at seven yeah, o'clock. Exactly. But wait, like, how how did you decide to to focus? on artists outside of pop or even rock genres, you know, like a lot of firms are kind of directionally oriented one way, but you kind of see things differently.
1: Yeah. So it's part of why we think there's great returns here. We are very data focused. Mm -hmm. And so we let data tell us where to go and not necessarily our aesthetic or our genre preferences individually. And as the data takes us through the opportunities that we see, opportunities that we think are differentiated, where it's a, you know, other people buy from their own experience. I think the other thing, too, is we're a diverse team. Mm-hmm. And so our experience naturally is different, right? Like what I listen to, you know, I tell people all this, all the, this all the time, and he actually performed at Essence Fest this year. So that was mm-hmm. very exciting. Is Marcia Montano and Kess the Band. Who knows that?
0: Oh, I know Marsha Montano. Don't 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 challenge me. I know what's up. I know what's going on, too. I I took a dip into your catalog.
1: Okay. (laughs) Okay. But look, but the point is that in understanding that music is hyper personal, Mm. too, that there's a lot of opportunities that may live outside of what's fed to us that people listen to and engage in. And if you look deeply, you can see that they have great characteristics, cash flow characteristics, growth characteristics. And, you know, but a lot of people buy, again, from the four corners of their experience, and they may be more of a homogenous Mm. group in the one they buy. And so as a consequence, there's nothing bad about that. It just means that, you know, they buy from their experience, we buy from ours, which is why we sort of like to have out of many one people, we like to have a diversity of what, what our team looks like, because it's really important for us to make sure that we bring all those perspectives together so that we're not somehow feeling like it's only our four corners of the universe that matter and not remembering that the world Mm. is round.
0: Yeah. And and these deals, they're not small. I mean, these are like a hundred million dollar deals. I mean, supposedly, I think Justin Timberlake sold his for about, you know, like a hundred million, but I mean, I'm just kind of speculating, but like the numbers and the yield that you can essentially sort of gain from this is significant. So what has been, you know, as we kind of wind down, what has been sort of like the transition within the, in the market and how have you remained reticent and confident and resilient in sort of your efforts towards pursuing this, this arena with your culture and your team?
1: I mean, I think one of the big changes that everybody's talking about right now is the rise in rates, you know, so the Fed is kind of anticipating a pretty aggressive additional step up in rates in the near term. And, you know, the market has gotten more volatile. There's been more value opportunities in the marketplace overall and so for us in terms of being resilient, we're constantly, you know, being thoughtful about how we think about opportunities. We, because we are a resident of the space and many who are participating in the space are tourists or they're opportunistic in their thought process and their view, it leaves room for us to actually dig into our strategy and really be thoughtful about it and actually find better and better return opportunities as time goes on. And that has allowed us to, you know, be very focused. It's again, goes back to sort of your intro of like why we think content is queen. We do think that IP over the long duration will hold and grow in value. And that conviction is not wayward. It's not fleeting with the moment or fleeting with what's next in line. We believe that as a strategy and as a yeah, firm. Well,
0: a lot of people think, you know, to your point, they say content is king. And I'm letting everybody know, no, 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 content is queen. And that is Sharice uh, right there in front of you. Talking and explain to you why she is creating her own moat, building companies, and you know, lifting all boats in her in harbor. I love our conversation and love all the things that you're talking about. You, you know, the fact that you brought up Marshall, Marshall Montano. I mean, I, I learned about him down in Trinidad, so I'm just you know just letting you know. So I, I know how to chip with the rest, with the best of them. I know how to do it. I've been to Carnival, right? So, right, exactly.
1: Look, ready to
0: go. <laughs> but, you know, Harborview will, for all those that are listening, establish its star in the solar system. So as we kind of come to a close, one of the things that we always talk about on the Pathfinders is meals and deals. And so I just be curious, right, when, you, when you're closing a deal, when you're, when you're coming up, You know, on the very end of a transaction and you're bringing everybody together, you know, is there a place that you celebrate your your meal, you know, with your favorite deal or is, is there a tradition? You know, we just call this meals and deals.
1: We've been so busy that I come don't on, think we've given come ourselves the grace you, you to eat. celebrate. We have not celebrated that way. We, yes, we've been so busy that we have not given ourselves the grace to celebrate. We're closing a deal today as an example. So, But I will tell you my favorite places to spend time and to toast. We've toasted the launch of the business at Spring Place. We've had great meals at places like Milos. In the city, and we intend to have a really great office kickoff to open our office. Our, our headquarters will be in Newark, New Jersey, which we're thrilled about. And so, we intend to have a really great festive um, celebration. Well, hopefully,
0: then. I'm invited. Maybe you'll have some oxtail. Yes. Maybe you have some fish stew. We'll have all. Of you things. know, I know you're gonna have some. I know you're gonna have some we'll good have food. And things. and I know, you know, you you do get a break. So yeah. when you do, eventually get a break. Make sure, make sure you save save a plate for me because I'd love to join and continue this conversation. I just want to say thank you so much uh, for you being here. It's just no, inspiring you. all the work that you're doing in the culture. I think everybody needs to really hear again, really, it's about the resiliency. It's about content is not king. It It is queen. And I'm just excited to have you on uh, Pathfinders by Ansarada. So thank you, Sharice, for all of your insights. Thank you for joining us today.
1: No, thank you so much. And super excited to be here and look forward to... Look forward to doing more
0: together. A special thanks again to Sharice Clark-Sorres for being with us today. It's really amazing to see the work she's doing in the world of music copyrights and other media assets and learn how Harborview Equity Partners is coming at investing and deal-making from a whole new perspective. If you're enjoying The Pathfinders, please make sure to leave a review so more people can find the show. Until next time, I'm Dahani Jones, and this has been The Pathfinders, presented by Ansarada.